Welcome to Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street, where we take a light-hearted look into the stories and individuals that make up the wonderful world of hospitality. Today's guest is the incredible Kate Nichols, CEO of UK Hospitality and the person who gives this industry its voice. Coming up on today's show, Kate outlines her three-point strategy for success. It's it's strategic, it's tactical, and then it, it's out and out, street fighting. Phil gets far too philosophical. When all said and done, the experience is actually really all there is. And we learn that policy wonk is an actual term. I could have ended up being more policy wonk. Right. <laughs> is that the official term? Yeah, it is. All that and a whole lot more as we caught up with Kate in the early 2020s, a few weeks before COVID-19 started playing havoc with us all. Enjoy. Well, hello, good day, and welcome to another podcast with me, your host, Phil Street. And today I am a little bit giddy about uh, having with me um, something of a stalwart of the industry. Um, delighted to welcome Kate Nichols. Thank you for having me here today. You're very, very welcome. I think you're actually having me here today. Um, in <laughs> well, your you office. are in our office, <laughs> yeah. yes. But... but no, thank you very much for, for spending some time with us today. So maybe before we get into any kind of great depth, you could kick us off all the way back to the beginning of your career and tell us how you got into doing what you're doing from the very beginning. Okay, well like so many people, my first taste of work was working in hospitality, helping out in a kitchen, pot washing and then doing a little bit of waitressing. Um, And then post-university, having had that as a sort of part-time job, um, I went into politics. I was a frustrated journalist, but I went into politics um, and and did a, a three-year stint in the House of Commons in the European Parliament. And at the European Parliament, most of what I was doing was around food legislation and food law and how you influence it, and particularly what additives you can add. So one of my big claims to fame um, as part of that was that we saved the prawn cocktail crisp, but more importantly, relating to hospitality, we saved the ability to use um, colourings and flavourings in beer. Right. Particularly caramel. That's very important. It is hugely important. Um, uh, Prawn cocktails, crisps, very important too, but beer, critical for a lot of uh, people in the community. So (laughs) as a result of that, I was lobbied intensively by a number of the big brewers and the pub companies and the restaurants who were, and food preparation companies, um, which is how I managed to combine the two things of politics and hospitality, because as a result of that, was asked to go and work for Whitbread right. um, at the time when Whitbread had pubs, breweries, hotels, yeah. not just Premier Inn and coffee shops, yeah. but um, right the way back, um, and worked uh, in their corporate head office in Chiswell Street in the old brewery, um, advising the various boards on legislation and government relations and law as it applied and making sure that they had a good voice in government, which is how I kind of fell into my current role. Right. Um, so that's back in the mid-90s. Um, I then worked as a, a lobbyist, again, tending to work in, in retail, consumer affairs, hospitality, advising a number of travel and tourism companies um, and also trade associations. Yeah. Uh, and then that's how I got involved in ALMR, which is the trade body that was looking after pubs, bars and restaurants. Sure. Um, and then 18 months ago, two years ago, we merged that with the British Hospitality Association, which was hotels and contract catering. And I am now the voice and focal point and figurehead, if you like, for, yep. for the whole of the hospitality sector. Yeah. Um, and well, I mean, that's uh, it sounds like a monstrous job. 
I've got to be honest. I think it's the best job in the world. Really? Yeah, because I think our industry is so fantastic, so diverse and vibrant. Yeah. Um, and I get to be the face, the public face of that industry. Um, so I never have a boring day because no two days are the same because we've got such a diversity of employees. We've got a diversity of operators. We have a large number of entrepreneurs and I get to deal with all of their issues on a daily basis. Yeah. And then I get to meet MPs and politicians and ministers and the media and talk about that um, fantastic industry and tell them about all the good work that is being done. And on top of that, I get to go out to some of the best hotels, restaurants, pubs, bars in the world to be able to continue to understand the industry and, and be at the grassroots yep. and also take people out there to, to show them what fantastic jobs that are being done. Right. So I've got the best job. You've actually totally convinced me. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. That sounds amazing. But, I, I, you know, I, I think not to underplay the, the work that you do, I, it's um, massively important. I think probably never more so than... Well, I suppose you could say that of any given moment in time, there's always something I'm sure that you have to deal with or or, or lobby against. But what what was it about this particular kind of line of work that really sung to you in terms of why did you you, you go down this route? Well, I think from from what I described earlier on, it, it kind of it happened to me. I fell into a lot of the opportunities that that, are, that I've had. Um, yep. I've made the most of it, but it does mean that I can combine all those passions. Um, what I really like about hospitality, as I say, is, is the diversity. But, you know, the challenge of heading up and merging the two organisations uh, was, was kind of irresistible because it meant that we had one voice for the third largest employer in the country, 3.2 yeah. million people. For the first time, we were able to quantify to government how big and important that industry was. Yeah. And the challenge of taking an industry that had been... Uh, perceived wrongly as being a sort of Cinderella industry, something that was just there in the background and not getting the the fair share of voice but also the fair share of attention. That that was really quite interesting as a challenge of, of how do we bring this to, to life? How do we take something? Because if you've got a big car plant or a big brewery or a big... Um, food processing plant it's it's very visible yep. the thing about hospitality is it touches everybody's lives every day it's in every high street town centre um, residential area every community rural village but it's it's an, it's made up of thousands and thousands of small businesses yeah and therefore it's largely invisible and what it does for the community is largely invisible so being able to bring that to life for people and have lots of politicians say you know never realised it was so big never realised how much good it did didn't know um, how much tax we contribute right. so it's a £130 billion industry right. £30 billion of that is export earnings because it's spend that foreign tourists make while they're in the country yep. so you know nobody thinks about tourism as an exporter but that brings it to life we pay £40 billion worth of tax each year to the government so that's the entire social care budget or the defence budget or the Brexit divorce bill, however you want to phrase it. But it's never been brought to life in that way before. So being able to take quite dry, complicated political subjects, make them live for operators and give operators the the tools that they need to to run their business, Mm. but also do the opposite and explain to government how business works and what it means and bring that to life for politicians. It's, It's just... It's a, it's a brilliant job. Yeah. Okay. And can you debunk a myth straight away? Yes. Do politicians listen? 
They do. They don't always hear. <laughs> right. Good <laughs> um, answer. It's a political answer. <laughs> and they don't always act. Um, but I think politicians politicians have to be uh, across so many subjects yep. and aware of so many issues. And they have a big post bag that comes in that's driven by their constituents. Uh, so... Uh, you know, trying to find a way that brings something to life for them and says, this is how I can help you achieve what you want to do at your local level. That's what that's the, what the trick is. You've right. always got to look for the win-win. And I suppose that really appeals to me as well because I like problem solving. Yep. I like being able to try and find it. So, so many, di- you've got the dialogue of the deaf in so many cases where you've just got people shouting over a cup of tea as you saw with the sort of Twitter storm this week about Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, and Yorkshire Tea, and I think somebody's printed T-shirts saying you're shouting at tea. Um, (laughs) That typifies so much political debate, or what passes for political debate. Actually, if you're going to be really successful, you have to put yourself in the other person's position, work out what it is they need from you, or that they're looking for to succeed in their life, and how can you give that to them. Yeah whether that's a platform, a photo opportunity, a solution to uh, you know, a conundrum that they're grappling with, often politicians and ministers will have the end point in mind and they don't really care how they get there. So if you can tell them how to get there in a way that helps your business or doesn't damage your business, so much the better. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, um, I, I suppose, therefore, you, you need a great deal of empathy for the, the situation. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I, I studied English literature, Right. Um, and you quite often get lots of people who say, what on earth do you study English for? And why do people bother with those liberal art degrees? But actually what it teaches you is for three years, you are looking at character motivation, um, hidden meanings behind their words. Right. You're having to put yourself in, in another character's place and position and work out what might be motivating them. Some of it you're inventing, yeah. but you have to invent that backstory and you have to be able to analyse it and present it through so actually it's great training for business because that's what or for for lobbying that's what you're looking at doing what is this person needing what are they wanting what are they looking to achieve and how can I help them do it yeah that's brilliant it's a really good I'd never have thought of that actually as a a method for that particular kind of qualification yeah it serves you immensely well for for this line of work to be honest neither had I until sort (laughs) of uh, you know you saw Dom Dominic Cummings who's the Prime Minister's right hand man came out with his blog post about recruiting weirdos and misfits and uh, for for Downing Street which which I agree they need better diversity Um, but he said I don't want typical Oxbridge English English literature graduates coming to apply and my English literature background and Oxbridge background sort of immediately my hackles went up and then you sort of stop and think about well what is it that I've learned what did they teach me and I think Luke Johnson made a, a comment as well in, in, in his, one of his articles as, as well about why do people do these liberal arts courses. Actually, there are practical things if you think it through. Yeah, no, absolutely. So how do you, that's, I suppose, looking at it uh, and breaking it down on a local level to, mm. to kind of uh, get a wider message across, I guess. But when there's a, a bigger issue to tackle for uh, you know, an industry-wide issue yeah. and there's never never probably been more so than in the news in the last couple of weeks but yeah. um how do you approach that because I, I suppose that's more of a central government focus isn't it yes yeah yes it's the same kind of principle because all you're looking at as i say is that win-win 
Yeah. You know, what what is it they're trying to do? Why are they wanting that message to go out there? And how do you work around it? So you know, the immigration announcement left most business, most of the business community completely blindsided because the, the Prime Minister in the general election campaign had said there would be a temporary low-skilled route. The Home Office, up until January this year, were talking about a temporary low-skilled route. Yeah. Um, and then the rug is pulled entirely from underneath your feet because they, they make a fundamental change. You have to... You have to know how far to push it and criticise, and you do have to be critical, but you have to be constructively critical, otherwise your industry, your sector is cut out from that future dialogue and debate. Um, And so again, it's about working out what is the the logical argument, and and being able to do it very quickly, because you have to respond very rapidly in in a media uh, environment. Um, I think I must have done about 20 interviews the day that the... Um, announcement landed before lunch right? So, so that's before you've had a chance to analyse all the details so you have to be able to, to assimilate and respond and, and work it out so you then listen to what is the message that's coming out and a very clear message from number 10 and the Home Secretary is freedom of movement will end and we will reduce low skilled migration yeah. in order to protect workers in the in the red wall seats and it's quite clear that you're looking then at a strong public message now what do you do in the background to be able to get a workable solution and then you're looking at sort of very public criticism to the outward point but if you go head to head and and sort of attack that line of free movement shouldn't end or um, there shouldn't be control on migration then you've put yourself on the wrong side of the argument you're, you're into an argument you're into a head-to-head yeah and what you want to be is we're on the same side let's work this through let's find a solution and how let, how do we get a solution and then point out legitimately where their facts are wrong and why their suggestions won't work yeah but it's got to be calm it's got to be rational it's got to be evidence-based and I suppose a little bit collaborative in its focus as well. As you're, you're not, as you said, not alienating them from the the argument. And, yeah. Um, I think it, it's probably there's a, a lot of instances whereby the um, it, it's the shouting at tea scenario, um, where you know if you shout and scream at something, you're not going to get a, ever going to get a collaborative uh, yeah. approach to it. And also, it's about working out when to expend your political capital. Yeah. So you work with government and you work with individuals to try and help them achieve their goals. And you build up some goodwill and some political capital and they respect you as being evidence-based. They know you're going to be critical. Um, but it, it's if you shout at everything or if you shout and it's not justified or if you overclaim, then they, you just get sidelined. Um, but you know, when they made that announcement on immigration, they knew the business community wouldn't like it, and they knew the business community was opposed. Therefore, yeah. it's not you can you can use your political capital to go hard on that and point out the flaws and the problems, yeah. and then work on the solutions afterwards. But they they announced it knowing that this was going back on a promise, and was going to cause real harm. Mm. So you know from that moment that they're fixed on that end point so you're not going to change them yeah. sometimes they do it and, and they've not realised and then you do get a row bag yeah. but but this in this instance it, it's quite clear what they were doing and, and it's quite clear that the message it's who is your audience 
and what are they listening to mm. and and what's the response and that's why you know on those kind of things um we will always try and present the case as to what does it mean for our customers and what does it mean for our teams because yeah. nobody's got sympathy for business uh, and if you can present it as, as, a, as a customer you're going to pay more or you're going to have an impact or food prices are going to go up yeah. it's the same with the brexit debate you know, you've got half of our customers would have voted for Brexit, so there's no point in hospitality business. Sorry, what's Brexit? Sorry, I've not heard <laughs> this not word allowed before. To have, yeah. Not allowed to talk about it. Um, but it, you, you know, so for for three years, you did have business organisations that railed against it, but there isn't much point. But if you talk about what is going to be the impact on your daily life as a customer. Yeah. And how much more are you going to pay for a pizza or a pint or a cup of coffee? Yeah. As a result of business rates, national living wage, Brexit, immigration, yeah. all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. No, really interesting. I, you can't do this alone, I'm sure. No, no, no. Um, tell me a little bit more about the, the organisation as a whole in terms of what what do you actually have going on from a departmental situation and how does all that come together when you have a, you know, something that you're all kind of, uh, I, I don't want to use the word fighting because that's not really what you're doing. But um, No, well, I mean, it, 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 sometimes it's firefighting, sometimes it's crisis management. Yeah. But um, so we, I have a fantastic team and, and it isn't just me. Um, I, I can fire the bullets um, and I've got the, the length of experience to allow me to do all those media hits and, and interviews and present the arguments. But I need the team to be constructing the arguments and, and I'm only as good as the bullets they provide me with. Yeah. So um, we have a small team. It's only 15 of us in the office right. who run the trade association and they're split equally between people who are there looking after members and providing advice and support to members um, and running our events. And the other half are on policy and public affairs and communications and are, are looking at dealing with the legislative issues that come in yep. and the government issues that come in. Um, and then we have a, an agency who supports us as an external resource to help make sure that we're as tied in as we possibly can be and have the best relationships in order to get those messages across. Right. So um, it's, it's strategic, it's tactical, and then it, it's out and out street fighting. Yeah, <laughs> and we've got a combination of skills within the team to do all of those. Right, got you. So um, the the current, uh, I suppose, focus on uh, the immigration situation we, we've kind of covered ish. I mean, obviously there'll be a lot more to talk about that, but um, that I suppose is quite a reactive thing because you you don't know that's going to come until it comes out. Yeah. Um, are there situations whereby you're you're being proactive in in the sense that you're there are things that you can see coming that you can kind of start planning and uh, before you get a big announcement like this? Yes, I mean the immigration piece we, we knew was coming. Uh, we've been proactive in it on it um, because it's been sort of two years in the offing where they were talking about a new white paper and we knew they would have to do a new immigration system post-Brexit. Yeah. Um, th that was why there was so much frustration that bubbled over on the day of the announcement and why you had lots of the business community on the airwaves. I think, you know, I kept bumping into colleagues from different trade associations all saying the same thing. Um, because we'd been talking to government, we thought we had a sensible solution and then overnight 
it just changed. Yeah. Um, but yes, we work we work closely with our members to identify the most pressing issues of concern to them commercially. And then we take those out to government to try and proactively seek change. So whether that's around um, employment costs or property costs or landlord and tenant relationships, um, it tends to be around people and property right. that the big proactive campaigns come. Uh, and, and then there's also a big campaign that we've been doing and will be doing more this, this year around perception of the industry. So we started that about perception of the hospitality industry as a business. Yep. Um, and then we're going to be moving on to look at hospitality as a career. Because one of the things that I was quite surprised about when I, I took over, I was invited to go and do careers talk at my daughter's school to do the how did you get to be... A, a lobbyist and a CEO yep. um, and I said I was quite happy to do that as long as I could also talk about hospitality and apprenticeships and routes through yep. um, and then I was embarrassed to find that I didn't have a slide deck and there wasn't a slide deck and there wasn't a sort of toolkit that you could give to anybody in the industry to go and do a careers talk um, so we don't have good materials that are going into schools to talk about the opportunities that exist within hospitality yep. if we do have anything it tends to be focused on low level people you know the sort of messaging is you, you're bright and you go to university you go to do A levels and then you do university or you're not very good and therefore you can go here yeah. is what you tend to get going into schools and obviously that's a volume and that's a role that we do play is providing an input but I want to make sure we attract the brightest and the best and you've got the aspirational young people why is it okay to be a graduate and go into supermarket or retail management but somehow it's considered lesser if you go into hospitality. Yeah. Why do we not give people the information that says, okay, you might have done that Saturday job working behind the bar, but here is how you could go through and become, in two years, you could be a restaurant manager, a pub manager, a hotel GM, um, and have a very good career and very well-rewarded career as well. Yeah. We don't talk about that. Yeah, I um, completely agree. Nor do we say, you've done accountancy, marketing, law, um, there's head office jobs in all of those. Yeah. Now, you can go and be an accountant in a widget factory, but you can have much more fun working in hospitality. Yeah. I, and I think I, that's totally the central message. Yeah. Hospitality is a fun industry to work in. It's the most collaborative industry I've worked in. Yeah. People are nice and friendly because it's a people business. Yeah. I've just had a, a chat this morning with somebody. We were talking exactly the same thing about the diversity of opportunity that's mm. available. As you say, you can become a lawyer. You can become a marketeer, a financier, you can an engineer. Even mm. you know, they're, they're, I can't think of another sector that gives you that range of opportunity. And it's not all about serving food and cooking food yeah. uh, and pulling pints. And whilst obviously that plays its part, but there are um, there's a massive industry behind that. Yeah. Huge, huge. I mean, it's a bit like the, a few years ago, the army did a campaign where they were trying to change perceptions of the army, and they sort of moved from you're not going to be a cannon fodder foot soldier but they did the you know these are the different jobs and there was a, all boxes that, that populated yeah. on the screen and showed you the different roles for an electrician and engineer um, we've got masses of them we should be doing the same thing yeah. but the difference is you can do all of those jobs in any other sector but if you do it in hospitality, A, you'll be part of one of the biggest industries in the country. Yeah. Uh, B, you'll be working in, in one of the world-leading sectors because the UK hospitality sector is streets ahead of its international competitors. Um, and you'll have fun doing it. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And it's, uh, I think, record levels of investment are, are heading into the country yep. um, around that focus because uh, your investors have recognised that it's an incredibly credible business. Yes. Um, and it's one of the few sectors of the economy that is still growing, yeah. uh, particularly on the experiential leisure side and, and the difference of approach. And that's why the immigration proposals are so frustrating, because the only sector of the economy that you've got in growth is the one that needs people. Yeah. Um, and you yeah. can't deliver experiences without people. You can't automate it. Um, you know, somebody was telling me that they they'd been for a press launch on the the new Virgin Cruise liner, right? Yeah, the Scarlet Lady. That's right. Yeah, which has invested hugely in technology and automation, and all the systems went down on, right. when they did the press. So. Yeah, yeah. Who deals with that? Yeah. Who deals with that? Yeah. So they said the staff were brilliant and that's what they did. They jumped in, they problem solved, they used their initiative on their feet. These are the soft skills we train all of our people in. Yeah. You can't get that training anywhere else. Um, and if something does go wrong, yes, you can automate a bit, but if something does go wrong, you need the people there to put it right yeah. and to deliver the experience. Absolutely. But as you get a more mature market and a market economy, you move away from primary reliance on primary sector and secondary sector. So, you know, manufacturing is going to decline. Agriculture and, and mining and those kind of things are going to decline. Yep. In the services sector, that was the, the area that was fully in growth, but that was driven by financial services and public sector. And both of those sets of jobs are, again, in decline. They're not going to grow, yep. but we've grown 20% in terms of employment over the last decade, and we're still forecast to grow 5% year on year. Yeah. And the investment keeps coming, and yeah. that means more opportunity, yeah. more... And um, a lot of it is foreign investment. Yep. Um, and it's also investment that underpins other broader investment in, in, in communities. So, uh, again, there was a, a presentation in, in Hertfordshire that was looking at attracting a life sciences company, big life sciences company, to invest in the UK. Yeah. And they didn't want to invest in Hertfordshire because there weren't enough good quality hotels and restaurants around. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I think you put yourself in the shoes of the, the the worldwide population. We're all consumers of hospitality, yeah, in some form at some point. Whether you 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 go to your local restaurant or whether you 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 travel endlessly around the world, you're going to be on the end of of hospitality, um, and that's the the thing for me that it, it this touches all of our lives, yeah, in some form uh, at some point. Yeah. And so, um, is there any more credible industry? than that yeah and actually you know at, at this point we've probably reached peak stuff you know the, the I did a, a lecture at two um, hospitality undergraduates at the University of West London and started my lecture by saying you know when was the last time you bought something new not something that was a replacement or clothes or a new phone right. but something that you'd never had in your life before and we're probably the first generation that isn't buying new stuff I might give people the iPhone when smartphones first came out yep. but you know that's a replacement for another phone or another computer but actually you know my when in the 70s when we had uh, a greater affluence and a move in the, in the economy 70s and 80s people were buying new stuff for the first time there were people who'd never bought a television or never bought a fridge or yep. labour-saving devices We've reached peak stuff. People collect and curate experiences now, and particularly Gen Z. Um, you know, it's the photograph of your meal. It's the picture of yeah. where you were on holiday. It's the envy of your friends. That's where the growth is, and that's what we as humans are looking for. Yeah, I, I think, and hospitality plays a massive part in that. Absolutely. It's, um, that experiential thing, I'd actually argue, 
that we kind of all crave that. Where, yeah. um, I turned 40 a couple of years ago and I had a, a, a big party uh, and you know, all my mates from all around the world came to say hello and um, I realised that I was kind of a sum of all of them, all of the experiences that I'd had yes. with them and it, it made me really appreciate the fact that um, at the, when all said and done the experience is actually really all there is. Um, and that's really deep, and I apologise for that. But, the, um, but then, um, if you look at how things are evolving in the hospitality space, the the rise of immersive experiences yes. is the next thing, yeah. or it's probably not even the next thing. It's here now. Yeah, and competitive um, socialising. Yeah, you know that that sort of curation of your experience and having help bringing people together I think you know we lead busy lives yeah we don't have uh, an office base so often we're a lot of people who are working freelance or we're working away from uh, a set office so you need that sense of community yeah um, and you know that's the one thing that hospitality there's two things that hospitality really gives um, a sense of place and a sense of community yeah. And they're physically encapsulated in one outlet. Yeah. And you can come and work in this industry and uh, experience these experiences. Yes. Um, I, I was talking to somebody about the fact that, um, that they used to, in their early part of their career, they used to put on uh, events in stadiums. Mm. And so you'd have a, a big band, and in this situation it was Pink Floyd. Um, and Pink Floyd were rehearsing while they were setting up the yes. venue. And you just have to stop and have a moment and think there's 12 people in this space and Pink Floyd are playing to us yes. at the moment. Um, you know, and that's, what I mean, that's just insane yeah. as an experience. Yeah, there's things that money can't buy, really. Yeah. Um, and, and you're getting that as part of your uh, everyday working life. Yeah. You know, I, was, I met yesterday the, the somebody from, from Liverpool Football Club who was talking about Liverpool Football Club's ground as a tourist attraction and, and people going and they have about 350,000 people a day that they can get through Liverpool Football Ground as a tourist attraction. Wow. Um, and yeah, you've got people in the local community who are really proud of their club and are able to be part of it mm. and are working there, but then they're getting to see match day and they're getting behind the scenes and yep. again, trips and experiences that money can't buy. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just all part of your career. Yeah. So along your um, career so far, are, are there any standout, funny or silly things that have happened to you along the way? Oh gosh, probably too many to mention because I'm really <laughs> clumsy and so I'm forever <laughs> dropping, knocking something over, falling up onto stage. Um, I can't think. Well, falling onto stage is probably funny enough. Yeah. To be honest, yeah, it was just because the you know the perception is is that you have such a serious job. And I'm um, such a serious person. But you don't come across that No, way. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not. But I think because people just will see me on stage doing the serious set piece presentation. Yeah. They always think, and, and they also think I'm frightfully posh. And right. I'm not. I went to a, a, a sink comprehensive in the Northeast and I'm the first member of my family at university. So, right. you know, I've got working class background. So, but people do always tend to think that I'm quite posh. Right. But You've yeah. definitely lost your accent. Um, I, I'm not a Geordie. Okay. I'm a Mackham. Ah, okay. Um, and Durham doesn't have a really strong accent, but it has got quite strong dialect. Right. So if I was to lapse into it, then it would be stronger. Got you. Still got my flat vowels, still have a bath. <laughs> Very good. Well, my wife's from the north as well. Oh, she's, okay. She's still bath. Yeah. Although she has recently started transitioning into bath. Oh, no. Yeah, I'll have to have a word. Yeah. Um, no, it's got to be bath. 
Yeah. So, um, what uh, what does the next year hold for you uh, in this organisation? Uh, a really big focus on talent and recruitment. So we were fortunate to get the government to agree to a tourism and hospitality sector deal in June. So the government sets its industrial strategy right. and picks winners, basically. Okay. It looks at sectors of the economy that it thinks will be a, a generator of future economic growth and a career of choice, particularly as we go through the fourth industrial revolution. Right. Um, and we are the 10th sector deal that it has signed up. So it's, it's government and industry coming together to say we recognise that in the future these jobs are going to be important, this sector of the economy is going to be important, how do we work together to support it and improve productivity? Yeah. Um, I, I, I acknowledge straight away that it's completely counterintuitive to therefore cut us off at the knees by depriving us of access to labour. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and particularly given that one of the chapters of the sector deal sets out what we are doing to upskill the domestic workforce and how long it will take to overcome years of neglect of language skills, catering skills in schools, etc. Yeah. Leave all that to one side. Government has, has, has agreed that we're a career of choice um, and therefore we're wanting to put together a, a million pound campaign um, to recruit the brightest and the best and to promote hospitality as a career yep. at all skill levels, at all entry levels. Um, so we're just putting that together and that will form a, a really big focus for this year. Right. And where does that start? What, what, what's the first um, ripple in the water to, to kind of begin that? Because that's a, it feels like it's a, that's a long process to, to kind of get to the end yeah. result. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be sort of three to five years, yeah. I think. But we had our first meeting. We set up a board that's uh, led by employers. So, again, putting employers and operators in the driving seat to say, what is it you want to communicate rather than here's a lot of solutions that are coming from different people uh, to careers needs, but they're actually not meeting what employers want. Yeah. Uh, so we put that board together. Um, it met for the first time in January. We've got another meeting coming up in two weeks' time to uh, set the marketing brief and, and to identify what that campaign will look like. We need to raise the money. We are a quarter of the way there. Um, so we're inviting companies to support that uh, so that we can get it kick-started. Um, and then we hope to be able to have something that is coming out in the summer to influence those people who are graduating, leaving school in, in September yeah. and hit that period. Um, and I think it'll pick up a lot of the things we've talked about, the different areas uh, that you can work in, because it's, if we go too narrow down a particular age, skill or type, we're not going to capture the excitement of the whole of the hospitality and, and tourism industry uh, and the opportunities it, it provides. So I think it'll be very macro at the the outset yeah. to just get that message across about diversity, inclusivity, varied, innovative, dynamic, etc. Yeah. All those buzzwords. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I think, I, I guess, um, that's not just about the, the graduates. That's that's about um, opening, it, opening the doors to kind of anybody that wants to come in. Yeah. And I think that's where, there's, there's two things I don't think we've been very good at as an industry. Um, one is um, we tend to be too siloed. So we're contract catering or hotels or restaurants or pubs and yep. we direct people there and we then get worried about telling them all about the, the things. So one of the big frustrations is you get people who go in as hospitality graduates or hospitality um, di diplomas 
who get shunted into hotels and if they don't like it they don't know where else to go so we don't tell people okay you don't like the structure of hotels because it's a bit corporate have you thought about nightclubs have you thought about brew dog have you thought about yep. new world trading companies some of the exciting bars that have opportunities um we worry about losing them from that subsector and the other thing we haven't been very good at is providing a stitch across from other sectors so retail and distribution are making lots of people redundant those are people right. that are have some of the skills that we need we don't have a ladder across in an easy way that says you know debenhams is closing x number of stores or M&S is here's our route across and that's partly because we don't have big employers yeah so within retail you've got about five or six big companies that will all talk to each other and provide those routes we need to provide that that ladder across and particularly for older workers yeah um, and the other thing we need to do is to stop thinking about doing things the way we've always done them too true yeah, well, I mean, that, that, that's kind of the, uh, that's a problem in any sector, in any business, isn't yeah. it, really, that uh, if that's your way of thinking, then you'll always get what yeah. you've got. Yeah, and, and you'll always get that churn unless you do something else, and, and we've got to keep people retained, um, and some of that is about taking young people, and then they, they can't see the route through, or they burn out, or they're not interested, or they don't like long hours, mm. um, <clears throat> and giving them an alternative way of working. Yeah. Absolutely. I think the, um, the industry's been uh, good at, at, to some extent, at uh, looking after its own. I remember last year when uh, Jamie's, unfortunately, went, yeah. went down, but the outpouring of, you know, please come yes. to us. And um, I th- there was, uh, it was M restaurants, I think, that said, well, bypass first stage interview. You just come straight to final yes. interview. And, uh, you know, and that's just, there's, there's always been that sense of community. <coughs> but you're right, that within the rest restaurant community that yes. might have been the case yes. but did a, a hotel company reach out and do the same perhaps not I, I don't really know but the yeah. um it's a it's a very good point yeah and equally you know when um thomas cook went under that yeah. was the first time i'd seen the industry working together and that was partly i mean it's a horrible situation to have been in but it was one of those times that government recognized what we were doing in the industry because they brought us into those task forces for the first time because yeah. I've been battling for years to say you know if you've got Ellesmere Port closing and you've got 1600 job losses in cars I appreciate not all of them will want to come and work in hospitality but you haven't even thought about us as a career mm. <coughs> but the Thomas Cook was the first time that we we seemed to reach across the divide and perhaps it's because it was travel and tourism so there was a related space yeah but we did look at of those retail staff that had been made redundant or head office staff how could we fit them across who was a good fit was there any opportunities there at head office level yeah yeah no absolutely i suppose it has to start somewhere and at least that's you know perhaps that that was the catalyst and, yeah um and you're right and i suppose <coughs> the manufacturing sectors and all of that sort you know the things that don't immediately look like there would be a crossover of course there's a crossover there's, there's still a head office function there. There's yeah. all of these. Yeah. Um, and that's why I'm quite pleased that we, we've been the only sector of the economy that has retained a dedicated campaign within DWP. Right. Um, so they do Hospitality Works with us, which is about trying to encourage people to look at hospitality. They used to do them across a number of other sectors and, and sort of have a week-long campaign or a month-long campaign. We're now the only sector that they do that. Yeah. And they've recognised that if you've got building people who've been made redundant hospitality will have a route for for them so we've got them to understand that it's not just about the frontline staff and the kitchens 
it's about the broader issue um, and that hopefully will help as well in making those links across and making sure that people who are made redundant in other sectors and older workers in particular um, can come come through and have the flexibility that we can work because I mean we are the ultimate meritocracy and we're also the ultimate flexible employer so if you want one hour a week or 48 hours a week we can do something there will be people and there will be vacancies that can accommodate all of that yeah no absolutely um was there a moment in your career whereby you could have gone a different direction, do you think? Or do you think you were always destined to do this? Uh, well, I, I, was, I was a frustrated journalist. Um, I had a journalism um, post-degree apprenticeship lined up with my local paper in the northeast. Um, uh, after I left university and I graduated in 91 which was the first year of the graduate recession and they cancelled all their training places and said go away and get a year's worth of experience do something and then come back we'll be be able to do it next year but we can't do it this year and that's how I I sort of saw a research position in the House in the European Parliament I think it was rather than the House of Commons that was just supposed to be a year so I think there was an if, if if I had gone on that journalism course and I had done that, mm. I think my career would have gone in a very different direction. My hero was Kate Adie at the time. Right. You know, that was who I wanted to be. She came from my part of the world. She'd achieved a lot in um, a, a sort of male-dominated industry and she was a sort of, you know, the, one of the top BBC reporters. That's who I wanted to be. Yeah. So I think it could have gone very differently and equally I think it could have gone differently had I not got sucked into Whitbread and been recruited by them on the back of doing sort of food policy. I think I could have ended up being more policy wonk. Right. <laughs> is that the official term? Yeah, it is. Right. It is. Um, yeah, it's funny how uh, sometimes the, the rich tapestry of life, I think they yeah, call yeah. it, how it, 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 you know, with one door closing, another one opens. Yeah, and... which is why I try and tell younger people, and yeah, I've got two daughters, 17 and 14, you know, there is no way you know what you're going to do and there are so yeah. many jobs unless you've got somebody in your family who works in that thing you, your appreciation and understanding of what people do as a job is quite limited yeah. when you're at that age just open your mind and also the other thing I always say is if somebody doesn't know what they want to do and they do want to go to university university is not for everybody so that's that's one thing don't yeah. have to go to university you can go and do something fantastic at work straight away but if you don't know what you want to do, do something that you're passionate about. Yeah. Back to my, you know, why do I do English literature? Because I wanted to spend three years reading books. Yeah. And I'm really passionate about that. And as an employer, when I'm recruiting, that's what I'm looking for. I right. don't really care what the subject is. Um, I want somebody who's passionate and has a real interest and can talk to me and convey that passion. Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, simple. That's simple in theory, um, but I totally get you. I'm 100% on board uh, with that. And I think there, there is an awful lot of passion in this industry. Yeah, there is. Which doesn't necessarily get out into the wider world. No. Um, it's not, not always the message that people hear. Um, and yet, day in, day out, I'm, I'm in a, a fairly luxurious position because I, uh, I recruit by day. So um, I, I meet a, a large um, swathe of the, yeah. the industry at various different levels. And um, I, I'm always just amazed by people's journeys and stories and the, the amazing things. And that's kind of why the, the podcast even exists, um, is because these are the stories that need to get out there. Yeah. Um, and, and usually it, it isn't, 
it is a zigzag career that most of us have got and it is about seizing the opportunities but for those people who've got that initiative and want to get on and want to do something or have a thirst for knowledge or experience opportunities just fall at you in hospitality because the companies are relatively small there's opportunities to do all sorts of things Um, it's not when you had the sort of big monoliths of of a, a couple of big corporates and if you started at Whitbread, you ended up at Whitbread and you stayed there all your life and you worked your way up, or yeah. Bass or Allied or any of those. Um, I just think there's, there's so much that people can get from this sector. Yeah. And they can grow with the businesses. That's the exciting thing, that you've got companies that start as small entrepreneurs. And you know there's, there's people who've had the opportunity of a lifetime because they happen to be working in the bar at the point when they had one site and they've grown with the company to be 20 sites and yeah. then their HR director or people director or you know all of those kind of fun things yeah absolutely and I, I, I um, will bore you very very quickly with a short story from my own career right at the beginning and I, I definitely fell into the, the camp of not really fully knowing what I mm. wanted to do and uh, wanted to travel um, but didn't have any money so uh, applied to cruise ships actually the, the uh, Scarlet Lady was uh, quite close to my heart when it launched this this uh, year. Worked for P&O and just started as a receptionist. Um, and all I had really was my personality and, and my attitude. Yeah. Uh, and before I knew it, within six months, I got promoted um, on the basis of those two things. Yes. Um, and that's really all I could put it down to. Um, but you know, the, the, the sort of talk of low skill and all of that uh, this week and the last couple of weeks, I would argue that in actual fact, to have the ability to make people feel special is yeah. one of the greatest skills that you can ever have. Yeah. Um, uh, and so it's a high-skilled job as far as I'm concerned. It is. I think there's a, a, a misalignment between qualifications and skills. Yeah. And, and we, have, we, we rely on soft skills and they are, they are things that you can't sit and do as a book learning and you can't have a qualification that endorses you getting it. Yeah. But as I say, you know, most people who are working in a hospitality environment, whether they are a, a waitress starting out or a receptionist or anything like that, they're having to deal with customers, they're having to deal and think on their feet. They have to find pro- solve problems yep. for people on a daily basis. They have to work out a number of complex things. We'll expect them to do some, as they get higher up, finance, business, HR, crisis management, all of those things. Yep, strategy. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, It's about that um, personality and attitude. You can train the rest. Yep. And also there's, there's a false dichotomy from the politicians that are coming forward. If you have to train all of these groups, masses of people in the UK that they seem to think are unemployed if you yeah. have to train them to do the job then that job can't be low skilled yeah very good yep I never thought about that yeah but it can't be both no absolutely you know? um, but but that's that's the sort of statistic, and that's the frustration is you know you can't get around statistics we need people and there aren't enough people in the UK in certain parts of the labour market to do those jobs they yeah. just physically aren't it's not pay our way out of it, train our way out of it, because companies are doing both of those. All you can do is to breed your way out of it, and I don't think that that eugenics type of programme is, is the thing that the government should be advocating right now. <laughs> yeah, and plus that's a fairly long-term strategy. It is, but you know, we've got um, 200,000 fewer UK-born 18 to 24-year-olds entering the jobs market this year. 
that's simply down to what happened in the birth rate in 2000, 2002. Yeah. Um, and we don't come out of it for till 2030. So it, it is a physical thing. We've got an incredibly tight labour market, almost full employment, an ageing population, um, a lot of baby boomers who don't want to work in their retirement, and we've got fewer young people. Yeah. So who's going to do these jobs? And actually, they're finding that now. America... Um, you know, a couple of years ago, did have really strict and, and tightened up a lot of the immigration rules. Um, they are now finding they don't have sufficient people to do the jobs, and that's the situation we're going to find. We are in, but we're going to find ourselves in even more in next January unless we do something about it and we make some small pragmatic changes to the migration policy. Yeah, and the biggest one would be to stop castigating people as low skilled. Yeah, absolutely, and that strikes me as a great place to wind it up. Thank you. Kate Nichols, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure to chat. We'll speak again soon. Thank you. Well, what a great insight that was into the day-to-day life of the head of a trade body and yet another demonstration of the diversity of opportunity that exists within hospitality. We hope you're enjoying the shows and don't forget to hit subscribe and tune in again next week for more stories from hospitality. Thanks for listening.